squirrel in winter. A crust, at least, with my tea and a little nap. That's right. It's the Point of Learning Poetry Special. Props to my uncle, Peter Meister, whose haiku, Squirrel in Winter, first got me wondering about what poems could do. On today's show, two rising stars of poetry. She is not afraid to go there, to say the thing, to be direct, whether it's a a, a difficult image that she just really wants to drive home, or if it's a, um, you know, something that people just aren't writing about. What she was talking about, actually, earlier, she was saying that she um, is looking for the story that no one is telling, or a story that is is in the world, but no one's really paying attention to. I think that that's really self-aware of her to, to... to realize that that's what she's so good at and she's so, um, she's so brave. When I met Megan, I was very much in a binary world. The way I looked at the world was very binary. Um, so I, you know, it was right or wrong, God or the devil. It was, you know, black or white. It was, you know, rich or poor. Like the world was just very, that was the way that I had learned the world. And it wasn't until I met Megan that all of that kind of washed away and became like, everything was kind of an inverse of each other. And I had to really start to question, wait, what does it mean to be right? What does it mean to be wrong? Like, are, is that possible? What does it mean to be this or that? You can't, you can't just be one or the other. Aja Monet is a poet, singer, and performer. At age 19, she was the youngest individual to win the legendary New Yorican Poets Cafe Grand Slam title. That was 11 years ago, and according to Wikipedia, no other woman has done so since. Her books of poetry include Inner City Chants and Cyborg Ciphers, The Black Unicorn Sings, and My Mother Was a Freedom Fighter, which was nominated for an NAACP Image Award. Monet has performed at the Town Hall Theater, the Apollo Theater, United Nations, and the NAACP Barack Obama inaugural event. I was delighted but not surprised to look up at the Washington DC Women's March in 2017 to see her glorious visage on the jumbotron as she prepared to read, reminding the massive crowds that words have electoral power. Megan Plunkett is a poet who seems to be winning a prize every other time I check Facebook. Recent triumphs include the Missouri Review and Third Coast Magazine. She's been a finalist for Narrative Magazine's 30 Below contest, as well as the North American Review's Hearst Poetry Prize. Megan is just about to graduate with her MFA from Southern Illinois University, Carbondale, where she was awarded the 2016 Academy of American Poets Prize and serves as an assistant editor of the Crab Orchard Review, as well as a poetry reader for Adroit Journal. Her work can also be found in Tinderbox, Pleiades, Washington Square Review, and Luna Luna Magazine, among many others. She is the writer-in-residence at Omega Institution and the director of the Black Dog Tall Ship Writing Retreat 
on Martha's Vineyard, Massachusetts. These two phenomenal poets are also close friends. When they were first-year students at Sarah Lawrence College, they admired each other's work at an open mic during orientation week and soon realized they were both passionate about the right words in the right order. Aja is currently based in Miami, where she's equally invested in the community as an artist and social activist. I caught up with her several weeks ago when she was back in New York City to host the finals for Urban Word NYC, a spoken word collective that played a significant role in her own development artistically when she was a teenager. We talked backstage at the historic Apollo Theater in Harlem moments before the event began, so you'll hear some hustle and bustle in the background on our end. We called Megan in Illinois, where she had just defended her poetry thesis. They're both so busy that it wasn't easy to coordinate schedules, but I really wanted to interview them at the same time because they've influenced each other's work for the past dozen years or so, and because it was Megan who introduced me to Aja through one of Aja's poems when I invited Megan in to lead workshops with my students five years ago. Here's a taste of what I've learned, a list poem by Aja Manet, well worth hearing and watching on YouTube in its entirety. As Megan predicted, my students and I kind of went nuts for it. I know cloud formations, that raindrops don't fall in a teardrop shape, they originally fall in the shape of a flat oval. I don't remember where I read that. I know recycled water, tear ducts remind me of cleaning bathroom floors with a toothbrush until the bristles flatten and the tips yellow from bleach. I know how to bathe and wash a dish in steaming water, how to break one and glue it together with crazy glue, how to bathe someone else while soap suds squeeze under arms and behind ears. I know how to reach difficult places, how to be broken and put together again. I know my arms are long and my hands remind me of vines. I know laughter sometimes sounds like bubble wrap and it's my favorite part of unpacking boxes. When I smile, I squint my eyes. I know men with deep diaphragm laughter and ladybugs aren't really ladies. I know they like to follow me into subway cars on days when I need to be reminded of magic. I know spiderwebs sparkle like diamonds after rain showers. I know yesterday is the day before tomorrow and tomorrow is an illusion where I imagine the mouths of my children nuzzling on rest in a rocking chair while the lavender fields in our yard cement the wind. I know Brooklyn and the man on the J train who walks barefoot through the cars must be cold in February. I know cocaine is a hell of a drug. My father used to have a beautiful smile. I know he misses his teeth. I know it's been 20 years and he still smells like a bottle of Heineken. The smell of alcohol makes me nauseous. I know I drink it anyway. I know bazooka bubblegum doesn't last long and used to come with cartoon strip giveaways. I know Swedish fish used to cost five cents in the bodega. I remember candy dots on sheets of paper. I know that Mr. Softy jingle means it's summertime. I know Africa is far. Hip hop is in Senegal and Paris and Haiti. I've heard Biggie's juicy play in all three. I know my mother used to rap and they called her Baby E. I know she gave up her dreams when she had children. I know she wishes she didn't and I wouldn't be a poet if my mother would have had a better sense of humor. I know there are women who kill their children in 
alleyways and bathtubs and car seats and lakes. I know she lied about where we lived so we could get into good schools. I know good schools saved me. I know teachers help raise you. Yogamesh, Homer, and Odyssey. I know Antigone only wanted to love someone ferociously. I want to visit Greece someday. I know there are so many words for pain. English is a slave language. It doesn't account for the space between these words, the colors, nor the texture. I know books can make you disappear. Smiles change your face. And whether laughter is forced or organically born, it has the power to release chemicals that relieve stress. I know I love being held tightly. My feet sometimes embarrass me. I wore shoes too small as a child so my mother wouldn't make fun of how big they were. I know I was well into adulthood before I ever heard her say I was beautiful. I learned to use a mirror when I was six. I know she is still my first definition of beauty. I like my hair down more than when it's pinned up. I know little white girls are prone to getting lice in elementary school. We all suffer, and the basis of all human suffering is deception. I know we all get lonely. I know loneliness creates longing, and longing can be confused for love, and love doesn't exist, not like that. Patience is believing in the weight. I know there are guardians protecting me. I'm certain one of them... That poem, um, what I learned, I love it. I love teaching that. Um, that poem of Aja's because it's... It's so beautiful and subtle and so relatable. She talks about um, knowing how, learning how to glue a dish back together, and then and then she further explains it. I know how to put things back together, which is not just about the plate. It's about her life. It's about everything. It's about it's about her emotions. And um, I think that no one talks about the world better than contemporary poets, um, our current world. Um, So that's why I like teaching that poem. I like to ask guests about their teachers. Well, there's, my teachers have been pivotal to my entire life. I mean, every teacher I've come across has shaped and or helped me understand like what I wanted or what I was aspiring towards or what I didn't want out of um, life. In elementary school, there was a woman named Heron Itner, and um, she reached out to me actually but not too long ago on Facebook. But I was like a, you know, kind of going through a lot of stuff at home, and I had, I'd actually, I think I like stole some money from a kid in class, or I did something really mm-hmm. stupid, and she like took an extra like interest in trying to understand like why or what was the issue. Mm-hmm. And versus making me, like, I was really embarrassed that I got caught. I was, like, felt horrible. But versus making me feel really bad about it, she took, like, she actually spent more time with me. And she took more time to, like, show me attention and, like, care. And she would spend time with me after school. She called my mom and, like, didn't, not to to be complaining, but to, like, just show how much she mm-hmm. cared. And she wanted to know what was going on at home. So then she invited me to go with her. One day she randomly, like, I guess her and my mom got cool. She, she started to hear about my mom's, like, stories, single mom, like, raising these kids by herself, struggling to do so. And she invited me to go spend a night with her what? to start um, so that she could tutor me. Because, like, I was really wanted to do more writing, and I was not the best, like, essay writer. So she was, like, helping me re- revise things at the end of class. And then, like, I think there was, like, one essay or project that she let me go home with her. 
And then like I stood with her and her family. They made me dinner. Like she took me around her neighborhood. And then after that, I think, you know, we just always, she just always kind of like made me feel like I was important and that, you know, my schooling mattered. And As a teacher hearing this in retrospect, I can't help wondering what might have happened if things had gone the other way. If instead of embracing Aja and trying to figure out why she had made this mistake, the teacher had sent her to the office to be punished. God bless you, Heron Entner. For more about this kind of approach, reclaiming students as learners, check out episode 10. Um, and then there was like a principal who was really, the principal there, Tanya Kaufman, she was a superintendent for a short time at PS183. Um, there's articles about her and actually what she did at her public school was like a big deal, like at the time, um, her approach to education and like the way that she was talking about the public school system and all this. And she's, I would say she's someone that stood in my life. Um, recently she passed away, but she's someone that was in my life from the time I was like in elementary school to the time I was in college Mm -hmm. and consistently like would call or just check in on me. Like there was a time I was at Sarah Lawrence and I couldn't even afford to finish some of my credits and randomly she like sent the money and like didn't told me not to tell my mom and like just, she was just one of those people that looked out for me. As reported by the non-failing New York Times, Aja's principal, Tanya Kaufman, was the kind of educator who led a school without bells and would replace the word unsatisfactory on report cards with a description, not yet, which feels to me like a promise. I think what was special about growing up in New York was there was always, maybe it was just my luck or I don't know, but I felt like there was always angels around that were in the public school system, like trying to use the school system to, you know, to help change the conditions of young people and like what was possible. So I think most of my, my educators were really young. They came from like liberal schools. They had, they were like very fiery, bright eyed people who weren't just, I was very fortunate cause they weren't just like in there for a paycheck, you know? So yeah. Megan? Wow, that was amazing. There, there's stories that I didn't know, Aja. This is nice, I, I'm getting, getting stories that I've never heard. I, I had some great high school teachers. I, I did a lot of math and science in high school. Um, so it wasn't until I went to Sarah Lawrence that I um, I felt like I really connected with professors that were introducing me to writing as as something that was actually possible to do f- for your your life. Um, so I'd say that that Jeff um, Jeff McDaniel, who um, was also Aja's professor we had that class together he was one of those um those teachers that really kind of broke things open um for me and um Mattia Harvey also um she was she's just incredibly kind and incredibly insightful um especially during a transition of of high school to college she was really supportive at Sarah Lawrence and that was really helpful to me Aja, you've, you've written that when a woman writes a poem, she spends time with the gods on your behalf. I love that. 
Um, as a teacher, I've, I, I favored uh, Emily Dickinson's definition. If I feel physically as if the top of my head were taken off, I know that is poetry. That's how I feel when I read my favorite poems by uh, Mary Oliver or Robert Hayden or by you two. Um, what is your favorite description uh, or working definition or non-definition of poetry? Well, let me first say I never thought I'd be mentioning the same phrase as Mary Oliver or Robert Hayden. So that's pretty cool. Um, I think... I don't know, I feel like um, there's a difference between poetry and a poem. Okay. I, f I, I feel like a poem is more concerned with the writing of a thing, like a, it's a piece of writing that is, you know, very literal, but not literal, but it's a piece of writing that is concerned with, you know, poetic techniques and elevating the, langu the everyday language we use to create some new meaning of our human experience. So I think that there's a concern with something very specific in what you're creating, that there are metaphor, alliteration, rhythm, mm -hmm. imagery, that all these things are kind of in that. And then I think poetry can be, it doesn't have to be a written piece of any, a literature. It can be a song, it can be an art, it can be art, it could be, um, you know, it could be the way somebody cooks. It could be the way somebody gardens. Like I feel like poetry in and of itself is a little bit more um, universal and, a, and it's more about a perspective or an approach to life that forces someone to look beyond what is, what is readily visible or available to people. So I don't know, Megan, I'd be interested in what you define. You pro you're probably better at communicating this than me. No, I think that that's really, I agree with what you just said, and you said it so beautifully. Um, I do think that that there's poetry in other things, not just things that are, um, that happen to be crafted with words. Um, I, I keep thinking of this Adrian Rich quote where she says, when a woman tells the truth, it opens up po the possibility of, tr of truth around her, or let me see if I can look it up. Um, when a woman, when a woman tells the truth, she's creating the possibility for more truth around her. And I, I think that that to me is what a poem is when, because of it, because of its existence, more truth is, um, kind of circles around it. And I think that that's also the feeling of having your head taken off, um, that Emily Dickinson said in, in response to a poem, because you're, you're opening little, sm small little truths, um, around this concept that you're trying to understand. Um, and I think that that's maybe the difference between a good poem and a, and a poem that's not really hitting it on the head. Um, you can kind of tell when a poem isn't really telling the truth or it's, it's talking about a truth that isn't, that isn't necessarily needed, um, right now. Here's an example of Megan's truth telling that is sorely needed right now. In which I name my abuser publicly, and they appear from the under eaves, a litter of women herding toward the full stop of his name. Tall, pretty, they are stained with his sweat too. I say his name and pull strands of other women's hair from my mouth.
all of us dusked and outstretched, lapping at our wounds, one of them yanking his tooth from her thigh, another flinching at bluebirds trying to remember what isn't dangerous. Look at the batch of us he devoured, two by two, how he found us like a bomber's screen scanning the land for human heat, reaching down for us under the heel of his boot. One, with the scent of him still stinking off of her, sobs out a full cask of wine. Look at what he made, brick by brick, a parade of fraying, a brothel on our breath, dresses tailored to fit an unnamed grief. We know what it means to jewel out our doubt in a thick, silent, shucking. What happened? What happened? That sulfur residue of matchlight, here we are, the girl with a spine like a church staircase, the girl who snapped like a guitar string, and the last one he sought out to look just like me, beaten into the same speech impediment, wearing my face like a bathrobe. I say his name, and here we are. Here we are. Poetry was important for me as a high school teacher uh, because I can so clearly remember being a high school student who didn't get it at all. Um, as a kid, I loved words and I did fine with novels and plays, but poems always seemed to have some elusive meaning that only the teacher and maybe one or two other kids seemed to get. I felt like I needed some kind of decoder ring uh, that wasn't available to me. You both studied poetry, um, you know, the graduate school level. You were both teachers of poetry. What are your ideas about how poetry is best used uh, in a classroom setting? Um, I just taught a creative writing seminar for undergrads last year, and I spent most of my time trying to get my students to not be afraid of poetry. And and kind of unlearning what they learned in high school. I am a firm believer that poetry is storytelling and it should be accessible. And if it's not accessible, um, then it's not doing a service to its its message and the people that are reading it. Um, so it was, it was hard to, it was interesting to see that that's still happening. Um, I was lucky enough in high school to have a, a teacher, his name was Ransom Griffin, um, which is an awesome name, um, but he introduced us to contemporary poetry, and I think that that's the, one of the larger mistakes that um, high school students, um, that, that, that te- maybe teachers of, of, of high school students are, are making, which is just to, which is, which is not to introduce them to contemporary poetry, because I think a lot of contemporary poetry is accessible. Aja, would you add anything to that? Or? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a little bit of what I loved. I took a physics course in high school, and before I even took it physics, I was like, the word I already made up in my mind. I wasn't going to get it. And I had a teacher. He ended up teaching me that physics was not just about like learning formulas and like all these talking points and everything, but he was very hands-on and action-oriented, and he was really big on getting us to see how things were made and then explaining the physics of them. So taking like 
cool. a slingshot and then breaking it down. And like it, it made his excitement for physics. He was the most charismatic, excited person every time he came into class. I'm sure there were so many days he was tired, but his energy around his and his love for physics is what made me curious to want to learn, well, what the hell is this thing that he's so enamored with? Mm -hmm. And even if I didn't get it, I could admire, you know, his his admiration for his craft and his, you know, his passion. And so I think, one, we have a lot of people teaching things that don't actually love it. And that's a really big failure of our, you know, our young people um, in the education system. I think if someone loves poetry and actually spends time with poetry and is teaching it to young people with that same level of, you know, energy and admiration for it, then that's going to translate to kids. So that's one thing that's really important. The other thing is that um, it goes back to what I was saying about poetic techniques. There are ways that rhythm and alliteration and personification and all these things that seem so huge show up in everyday writing material, in the names on certain um, corner stores in your community or you know, the songs that, we, that we're all listening to or the TV shows that we're watching. So there's ways that we can pull pieces out and say, this is what we're look. this is what we're talking about. Today we're talking about personification. Let's see how personification shows up in all these different ways, you know? And then that's going to give somebody the ability to say, oh, that's what you mean by personification. For more ideas about poetry in the classroom, check out episode three, my conversation with Paula Roy last summer. I've been fortunate enough to participate in seminars taught, led by each of you. Um, but I was also once in a, a workshop uh, led by Marie Howe, who talked about what it was like slowly coming to realize that she had something to say. Um, that her take on the world might matter to somebody else. That made an impression on me as a reader of her work because it's easy to assume that somebody who makes poems like Marie Howe maybe always knew that she should make poems. How did you each um, come to believe that you could and should write for a, a larger audience? Um, How do you feel, Megan? <laughs> I, I think I had the desire to write long before I actually felt like I had something of importance to say and something that, and I don't know, I, I think very similar to Marie, I love Marie Howe. Um, I, I think that I have um, a similar um, mission as as Marie, which I think a, a largely what she wants to do is is tell female stories and in that is a, po a political act in itself um i think that it took me a really long time and it took me as a person to become a fully confident um person that wanted myself to succeed and and then i started realizing oh my my the stories that I want to tell, the poetry that I'm making is actually worth something. And that was, that was, I think within the last few years, I've, I've finally arrived there and maybe, you know, in the next five years I'll say, oh no, I've, now I've arrived. But, um, 
I think that the, that the desire to want to do this and the um, and my ability um, and my my feeling that I actually have something to say were two separate journeys. Um, there was something about hearing people read poetry. Um, I used to watch the deaf poetry jams that were on. I was on HBO or something in high school, and I just my heart exploded every time. I, I heard when we snuck into them and we went and saw them ourselves. Yeah, we did. We got to go back <laughs> backstage, Aja and I, um, uh, during one of the filmings in New York. Um, but th- yeah, that wow. was that just that desire was was totally different from feeling um, confident. And I think that that um, really was tied to just my self worth as a person, um, which makes me think that you know, that poetry and my and my I don't know, humanity are really linked. Hmm. Well, for me, I mean, it's kind of ironic we're here at this poetry slam for finals for young people from all over the city. And it wasn't until I was in high school I had done a poem. Um, It was in talent show. I won the talent show with the poem. And my teachers were all like in tears and they were all just like super ecstatic. And one of my friends was like, oh, there's this, these, you know, I was like, wow, this is a thing. I want to find more. And then this one kid was like, oh, there's this organization. You can look them up. And there's more people who are doing poetry like this, young people who are doing this all around the city. And then I found out, looked, Googled Urban Word NYC, found out that they were doing poetry competitions. I went and did it, I fought the first time I ever did it. And then I just, but I was so ecstatic to find a community of young people who were, who cared about words and language and raps and poems and songs and all this. And so I like, I could, I couldn't avoid, like, I didn't want to go just back home. I wanted to spend like every day after school, I was at Urban Word and I was sitting at teachers and writers and I was, you know, go taking workshops and preparing myself and bettering myself. And so I saw that there was a craft and that there was a community and that there were mentors and people who lived and made careers off of poetry. And seeing that was like a whole other thing for me. But I want to say, you know, kind of maybe not to push back on Marie Howe, but to give an alternative. I think what's really important is not just having something to say, but also having, having to have an ear for what isn't said and to listen for the voices that are not heard and the voices that are not allowed to speak um, has always been a big part of my journey, which is like realizing the stories that resonated with me or resonated with people from where I was from and realizing that those stories weren't hurt, weren't being shared and weren't. And if they were, there was only, they were skewed or there was a certain way that they were being shared. Um, so it was important to me that just as much as I spoke, I listened and I spent a lot of time trying to understand what stories do I want to tell that is different from the stories that everyone else is telling and how do I get to a place of being as truthful with myself about what's needed in that story to come across for other people to be motivated to do the same thing. value most about Megan's work? Uh, well, I think I value Megan as a person. I see. Um, and so I'm invested 
in what she has to say and what she's working through in her poems beyond just reading, you know, them. So there's, there's something else there. I actually love this person. I care about this person. And I've gone through things with this person. I've struggled with this person. I've cried with this person. I've laughed with this person. So there's so many layers. There's so many poet. There's so much poetry to our friendship. It's our friendship is its own poetic tale, you know, that regardless of whether or not it's ever written in words, like we have that as an, as a shared, um, story or poem. But I think what I love about Megan's mind and just like how she talks about poetry is that she's the first person I've met in my life who got as geeked as I did about poems. <laughs> and we would sit and she, and she helped me get even more excited about poems. You know, like she would, we would sit in our dorm room and she would just open up a book and we would, we would read poems to each other back and forth and we'd be like, oh my God, remember, let's listen to this line. And we would just like, ah, oh, fall over ourselves <laughs> at like lines of poetry that's like, what are you guys doing? Like we should be out drinking or doing something crazy, wild night out on the town <laughs> as college kids. We were just like in love with poetry to the point that, um, I think she has also, she because she grew up, she didn't maybe talk about this, but she the way she grew up was very different than me, but very similar in some ways. Um, but her dad was like a really big figure who wanted her to like live this very, like, you know, he wanted her to be an engineer essentially, right? Wasn't that what he wanted? He wanted something like that. Something science-based, yeah. Yeah. And so she just had this mind that was like so inquisitive, but also very calculated and math and just like knew all these random facts about life and science and the world and nature. And so she would just bring up, like, we would just be talking about something and she'd be like, you know, ants, you know, and I'd be like, what? Who knows that? Who says that? <laughs> and she finds ways to pull these things into her poems. Um, she's very, she reminds me of Jeff. In, and maybe part of it's because we both were in class with Jeff, but in the way that Jeffrey McDaniel is, he like turns your mind upside down. He like, he has a way of kind of making you look at the world in the inverse. Like he just, his metaphors and, and surrealism, it's like very surrealist. So there's these ways that like something that's very, very mundane or whatever, she just kind of flips it on side, uh, upside its head. Um, like even the goldfish poem, it's like this one thing that you'll see and someone just looks at goldfish and they never really think about a goldfish's life. You know, they don't think about what a goldfish feels or how that's a metaphor for our life or what we feel. So Megan has a way of really doing that so beautifully and so clearly that, um, it inspires me to think about well, you know, how much stranger can I perceive the world? You know, how much um, how much more science fiction can I be in a sense? She, she kind of appeals to that sense of, uh, sensibility of me where, um, I, I really value that because I think the biggest thing I learned was when I met Megan, I was very much in a binary world. The way I looked at the world was very binary. Um, so I, you know, it was right or wrong, God or the devil. It was, you know, black or white, it was, you know, rich or poor, like the world was just very, that was the way that I had learned the world. And it wasn't until I met Megan that all of that kind of washed away and became like, 
everything was kind of an inverse of each other. And I had to really start to question, wait, what does it mean to be right? What does it mean to be wrong? Like, are, is that possible? What does it mean to be this or that? You can't, you can't just be one or the other, you know? And those are the things that um, we push each other on for sure. There's definitely different levels to our, our friendship, but I think her poetry is a reflection of her person and her person is, uh, it's just a beautiful, she's a beautiful person. She's an incredible person. She's an incredible human being. I'm you, gonna cry. You, you, you're gonna take a break? Uh, <laughs> can you beat yeah, that? Yeah, sorry. I'm just like going off. There's just, I could say so much about Megan, you know? And I don't often get to say as much as I would like to about you. But she's an incredible person, and I think it shows in her poetry. She's also super dark, which is, I think, something <laughs> I should say. She's like incredibly dark, and I'm incredibly dark at moments. So I think we kind of like fulfill each other's, like, you know, we've gone through a lot of shit as women, and so we have a way of making light of our darkness in a, in a, in a weird way, if that makes sense. It does. Well, I love you, Meg. I love you too. I'm all teary over here. Toward the end of our conversation, Aja had to excuse herself to prepare to host the spoken word finals. So I had the chance to pose the same question to Megan about Aja's work. I appreciate that Aja talked about me as a person also because I sometimes can't separate um, her from her poetry either. and I see a lot of herself in her poetry. I remember when we first met, and still sometimes, I'm inherently a shy person. Um, I, I rarely spoke when I was young. I, I was kind of afraid to speak out. And when I met her um, and we would go out and you know talk to people or hang out with people, I was so afraid of her ability to just say what was on her mind and, and not agree with someone and state her opinion and argue for what she believed in. That was an entirely new concept to me as uh, I think we met when I was 17. And um, I think that that's one of the reasons why I love her poetry is that she is not afraid to go there, to say the thing, to be direct, whether it's a, a, a difficult image that she just really wants to drive home or if it's a um, you know something that people just aren't writing about. What she was talking about, actually, earlier, she was saying that she um, is looking for the story that no one is telling or a story that is is in the world but no one's really paying attention to. I think that that's really self-aware of her to to, to realize that that's what she's so good at and she's so um, she's so brave in her work. It's, it's crazy. Um, but also weird and surreal. There's a poem where she's um, inside the womb and um, there's, you know— She's like tattooing the womb, her, uh, her mother's womb, with her words. Um, there are moments where there's like prophecy and magic in her work, while also being so rooted in reality and so so gritty. It's this amazing balance of um, of reality and magic, um, which is, I think, also something that I really appreciate her as a person. I think that she's one of like the oldest souls that I've ever met and one of the wisest people that I've ever met, but also extremely, um, like it has extremely childlike wonder and excitement and energy 
it's this this strange paradox that she's able to exist in both places. We've mentioned that Megan is a poet who also loves math and science. I was struck that several years ago she began teaching herself how to write code for computer software. I read in your interview with Muzzle Magazine that you see the connection or a connection between writing poetry and code. And then in each domain, you're striving for elegance. You know, that's, the, that's the point. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wanted to ask you to expand on that a little bit because it's hard to resist, <laughs> it's hard to resist this question uh, because you were well-versed in, it seems to me, both the oldest and the newest kinds of writing that humans do. Hmm. I like I like that you're putting it that way. That's interesting. I've never thought of that before. Um, yeah, I I was surprised. One of the the most exciting things that I learned when I started learning to code was that there wasn't just one way to do it. I thought that I was entering into something that was really similar to mathematics, where there's maybe one or two way, different ways to solve an equation, and you know you either get it right or you get it wrong, and that's not the case. Um, there are so many different ways to organize something um, that you're building. There are so many different ways to phrase it. Um, there's an editing process, and it's literally called, you know, to, they, it, the process is to make the code more elegant. That's a, a word that is used um, in, on development teams. And I, it really felt very similar to, um, to the way in which we write poetry, where every word is so precious and delicate and means so much and has its purpose and is placed there for a reason and carries its own load um, and phrases that um, are intended to, you know, take you down one path and then turn you here um, and direct you in certain ways. It, it, I just saw that it was, it made, it continues to, to feel very similar to me um, in that way. Um, on a more macro scale, I think that when you're thinking about how you're organizing something, um, how you're going to build something in an app, that process is kind of like the pre-writing phase for me. And this may be not not um, not only with poetry, but with just any kind of storytelling um, where you're trying to organize you know, how, what is the most effective way to, to tell the story? What genre, what, um, where do I start? Um, that also was, was, was a, a similarity that I saw. And then in general, just my, my desire to learn coding, um, in general was, was, I think something that is important. I'm, I am trying to remind myself all, all the time that, I need to always be a student in order to be a poet and in order to be a storyteller um, and learning new skills, um, even if I'm afraid to learn them, is the right thing to do always. Um, I think that we have little tiny fears pocketed around things that we don't understand, and that's where you, that's when you know you have to kind of understand it the same way if there's something that you don't understand in life, that's the thing that you need to write a poem about. Is there a question you would like me to ask that I didn't get to ask, or um, is there any? Do you have any other related thoughts, especially, I guess, uh, on the subject, I guess, of learning? Um, you know, because we think of this. I like to think of this as a podcast about what and how and why we learn. Yeah, um, 
I don't know. I don't know if there's a question in this, but I really do think that um, that unlearning things is just as important. And I've spent a lot of my time in grad school not just um, unlearning things that have to do with writing, but um, also just about just as a person with my habits and um, my weird. Um, little pockets of safety that I find myself huddling into because, you know, of everything of childhood, of the things that we learn, the mistakes that we make. Um, and I think that that after teaching, um, those students last semester, um, teaching them creative writing and really realizing that this whole class is just showing them that any, you can do anything. I tried to never say no to them I tried to affirm all of their instincts and just get them to write and enjoy the process. And that was the entire, I had, I had an entirely different objective and goal before I met them. And then I realized, oh, this is just, I just want them to generate something and not hate generating it. The point of learning is sometimes best engaged by unlearning, a perfect turn to go out on. What a joy to be able to talk with these remarkable makers for this month's poetry special. My great thanks to Megan Plunkett and Aja Monet for taking the time to talk, to Cam B, a brilliant director and interdisciplinary artist working at the intersection of independent film, documentary, and progressive hip-hop culture, who granted permission to use the clip from What I've Learned. You do need to watch his film of the poem on YouTube and to musician Schaefer James, who has collaborated with both these poets and made available some instrumental tracks from his album Haunted Things, especially for this episode. Thanks so much to you for listening, subscribing, rating, reviewing, and spreading the word about this podcast to everyone interested in what and how and why we learn. Back next month with a Mother's Day special. See you then. How, how do we feel about the proposed title, Two Dope Queens of Poetry? No. It's okay. It's not, yeah. I, I didn't hear I that. Know. What did you say? He said two, he he said, said, two how, dope queens of poetry. How do we feel about the title, Two Dope Queens of Poetry? Um, no? I, I'm just going to let you guys decide. Okay. <laughs> God bless you.